Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Abin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Abin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Jim, welcome to the program. As a shareholder of Aubin Resources, a sponsor of this program, I'm excited by the news just released by the company. You have an assay report back from the lab on the first drill hole covering multiple high-grade zones, including one to two ounces per ton of gold at the Forest Curve Project in BC's Golden Triangle. Well, hello, Ben Cartwright. We've got Bonanza-grade gold. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the area we're drilling is known for high-grade got all the right ingredients for it and we're pretty fortunate we got the sniff of it last year when we were drilling it's a short season so we got to wait all winter and all spring now we get back up there and you start a program and you know we had all that off season to become smarter to figure out a plan of attack and what we saw and how we're interpreting things you go in there and build a new pad put the drill on it it's at a different angle or it's you know in a different location and boom that's what you get So can we expect more of these results? And let me ask you this question. Were you expecting these kinds of results in this area, or were you just thinking something a little less? Well, I didn't think it would be like this. I thought we would try to hit what we hit last year, which was still significant. You know, we had up to 20 grams gold with good widths, and that's what we were shooting for. You'd make that zone bigger. We're in a zone. I don't think of it as an individual hole. We're in a zone. We want to make that zone bigger. This is a good way to do it. Uh, We basically put the drill about 40 meters back from that pad last year where we were drilling off of. So straight north and drilling almost on the same dip and azimuth, but it has further to go to get to where those other holes are. And they arrive there because they're drilling at the same angles as last year's holes. They're deeper. They come through at a different depth. And boom, right in that same area, it's expanding that zone. This particular hole has four separate intersections and it's four separate intervals of very high grade that aren't necessarily connected. So we have to report each one of them instead of try to connecting them all because that's just, that would be too much smearing, I guess is what it's called. It's a rarity and I hope going forward we find more of it. We're waiting for assays right now. We've got seven more holes. We had eight and one of them was lost because of conditions, but we got seven more holes coming out and the drill's still turning. We want to keep going, so... Well, how many holes do you think you're going to be drilling this summer? Well, we had planned initially for 5,000 meters, and that could be depending on depth anywhere from, let's say, 14 to 20. We're finding this at relatively shallow depths. I mean, the deepest, let's say at vertical, what we were looking at right now with all the intersections from last year and this year, vertical from surface would be about 125 meters deep. That's nothing. That's really not very deep. So your drilling costs essentially are lower. You're able to do a lot more with less money, correct? Yeah, yeah, you can drill more holes, and we drill off of pads, and pretty comfortably you can get three holes per pad, 45, 60, 70 degrees, without mobilizing, flying in, picking up the drill, moving it to another location. You just set up the pads where you know you're going to drill, and then you leave it on the pad, and you can change angles and, and azimuths and stuff like that. Yeah, our drilling costs are actually 
well under last year's drilling cost. I would ask you what the next steps are, but I think you just told us. You're going to keep drilling. More news to come from the assay labs, and we'll see what happens, right? Yeah, we're anxious to get more assays in. What we see now, we need a lot more drilling. In order to get a real handle on the controls and the particular, like, we don't know if we're drilling true width or what. We just don't because it's so fractured. This is such a highly mobilized zone of mineralization, and there's fracture faults running all through it, tiny ones. So what we look at, when we look at the core, it's really broken up. The veins on the core would normally be very symmetrical and round, and easy to see because they're quartz. They're really broken up, and that's just because we're in that juicy spot between the curve fault, which is a big driver of a lot of events geologically, and then the contact of the Hazleton-Duhaney group, different age rocks. That seems to be the sweet spot where a lot of the mines in this area are found. So there's a lot going on. More drilling will tell us. A lot more. I think we could, it's like Ron Nedelitsky said, we could actually sit there, you know, between this zone and the one to the south that we actually were talking about last year was a historic Naranda hole, which was over 300 grams. Like, it was tremendous. So what's between those two, where we are now and, and that one? That's 230 meters away. So there's lots of area to to work with. You know, Jim, I haven't heard of anything like this in quite some time. We have short memories anyway in this business. Yeah. Well, to have an intersection like that that would include the six meters of two ounces, basically what it is, that's spectacular. It is. It's spectacular. Several years back when we made a discovery in Rainy River, and the company I was running called Bayfield, we eventually sold it to Newgold. Our initial discovery hole was 10, 11 meters of roughly one ounce. That was similar to this. I mean, almost every one of those one meter intervals had one ounce in it. And that stock did really well. So that's your methodology when you're looking at a project or a property. You're not playing around. No. You know, one of the big big keys to gold exploration, you want high grade. You want high grade. When you get into the development stage, we're explorationists. When you get into the development stage, you know, you can string together all the five and six ounce intervals you want, but the market really responds to high grade. And this is a perfect area to be in. Well, it's not just high grade, it's shallow depth, meaning it's easy to get the gold out of the ground and easy to process it. Yep, that's really key here. I mean, I flew over, I was just up there, and it's very remote, very high altitude, very far north. We're way under budget on our helicopter usage, too, so I took the helicopter and uh, had them fly us all around the southern region there from our property south, so you go over Eskate Creek, KSM, down to Bruce Jack, which is Predium's big new mine. Well, that is spectacular. i got to tell you, they put a mine and mill right at the top of the mountain where glacier is receded off of, and the road up to it goes right up the glacier, right up the middle of the glacier. Well, that's got to be visually spectacular. Did you take any photographs? Oh, yeah, I got them. We'll get them on the site, our website, but that's an indication of when you go through development into production, your capex in this area could be huge. We happen to be in an area that's not on top of the mountains. It's part way up. It's a shoulder of the side of the mountain, relatively flat, and it's a, sort of a dream come true for a lot of contractors up there that end up having to work for us. Jim, how big is the zone anyway that we're talking about for our new listeners? Well, we can now extend this because what really got us interested in this area, um, the boundary zone, was that initial Miranda hit from 1991 of over 300 grams per ton. We knew it was under a meter of that, but it extended out. It was a good, robust hit, but they didn't follow up on it. So that's at the southern extent of what we know. Where we hit last year, it was 230 meters north of there, and we call it the boundary north zone. And we know it's mineralized. We found that out, those three holes from last year. And now we find that it's even better than we thought, 
So what's to say, when you look at those two particular areas, Boundary North is a zone. I think the one to the south of us, the 91 hole, it's a zone as well. And that is, let's call it 250 meters apart. And this is all based on geochem, soil anomalies that got us there. They extend for four kilometers to the south. As a shareholder, I'm going to ask you what I'm sure many of us are thinking, as well as those that are considering becoming shareholders. What's the plan going forward? If you keep making new discoveries, are you going to sell them off? Are you going to sell the company off? Are you going to be your own project generator? I'm asking you as if I don't know anything about it. Well, at this stage, as explorationists, if you research the company a bit, we've got three really good projects, early stage, and we will develop it as though we would take it into production. That's what you do. Somebody comes along and offers you something, ultimately everything's for sale. And what generally happens with companies like us is they end up selling it to a major. But you don't set out doing that. You, you have to operate like you're going to develop it and then take it from development to production. So I'm of the mind that, yeah, we're going to listen to anything that comes our way. And there are people up there looking, you know, no, Cisco's looking up there. Gold Corp's got a presence up there. Barrick's now back in the neighborhood looking around. There's lots of opportunities to do something. It's a good way to partner up with people. I mean, that's what the majors are doing. They're looking for successful juniors who can be their eyes and ears on the ground to do an exploratory work. And they also help fund the project. So you end up with a partner. Let's talk about that share structure and potential upside. And I underlined the word potential. Yeah, well, the market cap is what you look at, and it's still, compared to some of the peers that have started out here and quickly ended up at the 2 to $5 range, we're still a bargain. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, and today with very exciting news. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with James Pennant, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources. Trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements, oil and gas stocks. Learn about them by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Westsells, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold, trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Western Copper and Gold is solely focused on developing the world-class casino project located in the politically stable Yukon Territory. Currently in the permitting phase, Casino is poised to be the premier copper gold mine in Canada and the flagship mine for the Yukon. Western Copper and Gold, through its wholly owned subsidiary, Casino Mining Corporation, is committed to developing the casino mine in a manner that provides economic opportunity for all involved while maintaining the highest levels of social and environmental practices. Paul, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Alex. Last time I saw you, we were on a boat sailing down the Yukon River. Yes, yeah, that's true. We got quite the history of Dawson when we were up there. I know, I know, and some of us got a little bit of sleep anyway. I, I don't think you were one of those people, but uh, I digress. Yeah. 
<laughs> not sure if I should include that in the interview or not, but let's talk about the Yukon. Oh, you're okay with that? Okay. Uh, no, I'm fine with that. Let's talk about the Yukon, what's happening this summer with Western Copper and Gold. Sure. I mean, you've been up at the Yukon a couple of times, and, and we've spoken several times. You can appreciate just how busy the Yukon is from a mining perspective. Things sort of kicked off a couple of years ago when Gold Corp bought Kamenak for the coffee project. They're continuing to spend a lot of money in it, that project. Uh, we've got Victoria Gold building a mine. There's lots of action up there. There's lots of investment up there. And from our perspective, from Western Copper and Gold and our casino project, it's actually been a very, very important year. And really, the key thing for us this year has been on the tailings. So if you look at our project, casino project, one of the sort of key things for us to absolutely nail and get right is what to do with the tailings and mine waste. And when we talk to the communities and we talk to the First Nations and, you know, as we've moved through the permitting process here, that's been one of the sort of key things that's been identified as a concern for obvious reasons. So we've worked very, very hard. I mean, we initiated this process called the Best Available Tailings Technology Process that's been underway for just about a year now. We expected it to take about a year, and it's sort of wrapping up, and we expect it to be wrapped up by around the end of September. And what this did was really take a blank sheet of paper, look at all of the possibilities for dealing with tailings and mine waste. I mean, the first pass of this had 495 options, just to give you an idea of how encompassing it was and how thorough the sort of analysis was. And so that whittles down and they do trade-off and there's engineers and the First Nations and they've got consultants and the regulators are involved and the various governments. Anyhow, to make a long story short, we're now actually down to essentially the final solution. And so there is broad agreement on where we are and there's sort of down to one solution. It's in essentially the same site that we had in our feasibility study, but has a lot of new improvements to it, a lot of sort of little tweaks. It's going to be operated differently. We're pretty excited about that because it's sort of, A, it's a better solution than what we had previously, and sort of B, and probably more importantly, we've had the First Nations, the federal government, the territorial government, the regulator, all involved in this process. The solution that we have now, all of their sort of input into it, and so this is going to get finalized. I mean, there's a draft report out right now that just needs to turn into a final report. And that then becomes the cornerstone of, of really the next phase of permitting for us. So it's a big thing for us to sort of get this, you know, I'll never say it completely done and, and signed and sealed, but it really sort of takes all the concerns around the tailings and mine waste and, and sort of puts them to bed to a certain extent and allows us to move forward. I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. My question is, and the question a, a shareholder may ask, maybe a shareholder is not as informed as, as you are, what's the cost? for the solution? Yeah, and that's a great question. Let me answer that in two ways. First, when I talk to our VP of engineering and the engineers and I sort of say, you know, what do you expect the cost to be on this? They come back and say, you know, the way we look at this, we don't expect this to be any more expensive than what we have currently are carrying in, in the feasibility study. So at a first pass, that's the thought. But really, in order to dot I's and cross T's on this, what we're going to be doing and what the sort of next phase, once we sort of have this, well, I mean, essentially it's finalized now, so we're going to sort of kick this off right now, is to do the engineering on that. So if you look at what the second half of the year is going to be for us, it's going to be taking what's at a conceptual level design right now, bringing that up to a feasibility study level and putting some cost numbers on that. 
Great. I think we've fully covered that. I certainly appreciate it. I know there, there have been questions about the tailings that have come up, and I, I think you've adequately answered those questions. Let's talk about the copper market right now. Um, you and I discussed this on the boat off the record. We went all over the place with it. We know copper is here to stay. It's been here to stay for millennia. It's here to stay indefinitely, and the industrial usage for copper is only going to increase as technology continues to increase, and the world becomes more and more and more electric and clean. Nevertheless, we see a slump in the market. And is that just the summer blues? Is it the tariff talk? I know that China is really backing away from North America right now as far as investing even in mining at the moment. Not entirely, but still to some degree, you're sort of sitting it out and wait and see what the Trump administration is going to do or what's going to happen in two years. So are we in a temporary slump or are we in a two-year slump? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's fascinating. The copper market right now is I actually think that there's a tremendous opportunity for investors right now. So let's talk about supply and demand. You know, copper, unlike gold, and gold is a whole other animal, but copper is, you know, a very, very simple commodity. It's a large commodity. As you said, if you look at long-term supply and demand fundamentals on copper, it looks very, very good. And so let's talk first of all about supply because that's really sort of the interesting story for me right now. And so what you have on the supply side is you have close to a decade now of underbuilding of copper. And there's been a good reason because the copper price has been depressed. So past decade, copper has been you know sitting around $2 or floating around that. That is not an incentive price for anybody to build a new copper mine. So that really hasn't happened. So that's one of the reasons that copper drove up to $3. Now, it drove up to $3 quite quickly. You haven't seen a lot of new projects be announced. There's a couple, you know, they're beginning to sort of trickle in, but really copper needs to stay above $3 in order for that new production to come online. So that's the supply side of the story. And, and the supply side of the story is a bit more two, three year sort of time frame. And so the, the sort of little blips that we see as we go through, and I mean, you've seen copper that mid-June was 320, a week ago was 285, three weeks ago was 270. So you're seeing a large variation in the copper price. But on the long term, I think you're going to see it sort of hit that $3. On the short term, you're exactly what you brought up is true. You're seeing pressure really related to the talk of tariffs tariffs that are coming from the U.S. government towards China, the, particularly this, this $200 billion of additional goods that is going to be subjected to an additional tariff. So, you know, whenever that story gets wind, you see the price of copper go down. Whenever it sort of looks like that might pull back, you see the price of copper go up. But I think that what you're going to see in addition to that is really the supply side of the story is going to get stronger and stronger. There was a great article out a couple of weeks ago with Citibank coming out and saying, expect the next two, three years to be Dr. Copper on steroids. I mean, this is really a supply side story. I actually think that these are great buying opportunities for obviously our stock, but any copper stock. When you see there's a headline about tariffs, copper drops, copper stops drop a little bit, buy them, and then the, that story disappears and the, the raw fundamentals begin to kick in and you start to see prices go up. Well, the real winners in the resource sector are the contrarians, period. I mean, that's when you win. It's when everyone's looking away. For instance, now in the, in the middle of the summer when none of the news is good or nobody cares and, and prices are depressed, you want to wait for them to double or triple someday? No, you don't. You want to come in now and do exactly what you suggested and pick whether it's your company or not. Pick some copper stocks that you like and get in and look away. I'm not telling our audience to do that. I'm just saying it might not be a bad idea. And furthermore, I've also been talking to our audience, Paul, about looking for potential 
potential M&A targets because then you're buying on that condition that that could happen someday, especially with the juniors, and then you're, you're just going to look away and wait for it to happen. Yeah, it's been a very interesting year in, in the copper M&A space. And it, it sort of started off with Lundin essentially launching a, a hostile takeover for, for Nevsun, particularly for their TMOG deposit located in Serbia. Great deposit. And I guess they've been talking for years, couldn't agree on price. So that ended up being a, a hostile takeover. So that sort of kicked things off. Just recently, it was announced at the end of last week, you saw Newmont, traditionally a gold company, but again, beginning to look at copper gold. So announcing that they're going to pay up to $275 million for 50% of the Gorky Creek project. Now, this is a project located in British Columbia. In terms of jurisdiction, similar to casino, in terms of size of project, we're actually a little bit bigger, believe it or not, at the casino project, and I would argue an easier project to build. But that was very interesting, and certainly a number of my shareholders were very encouraged to sort of continue to see this, this M&A in the sector. And really, this has been the year where we here at Western Copper and Gold have seen a real increase in interest. The majors and other people coming in and taking a look at the project. Again, it's just you would expect that. Long-term fundamentals of copper are very, very good. There's been an underbuild. There's not a lot of good projects. Jurisdiction is another thing that's becoming more and more important. If you look at what's happened with Freeport in Indonesia, they've sort of been forced to, in a certain extent, to sell their portion of the large Grassberg mine back to the Indonesian government. So they've been sort of pushed out of Indonesia. So people are beginning to look at good jurisdictions. You look at it, obviously, in Canada, Yukon, you've been up to Dawson. It's a great place to build a mine. And we've had a couple groups up there over the summer. And when they come up, they, they really get the Yukon, I think, as you did, Alice, when you came up and just what a great jurisdiction it is from a mining perspective. From all the places I've been to, you're absolutely right. Uh, as far as the resource sector is concerned and jurisdictions, I mean, it feels like a hustle bustle area and a company town, actually, as if the Yukon is its own project generator for the majors. And there's five or six of them up there uh, just scooping things up all over the place, if not entirely, at least with joint ventures. Yeah, you know, Gold Corp post-buying coffee, I mean, they came in and made a 20% investment here and 30% investment there and a number of juniors and Barrick's been up there, Newmont's been up there, Core's been up there. Yeah, the glaring omission is the base metal guys and they've been slower to on the upstart, but they certainly have begun to show up. And you're right, it's like its own sort of special, very company town up there because and you look at, you know, our big news from last year was that the government announced this gateway project and this is you know the federal government the territorial government announcing money to build roads in the Yukon and one of those key roads is the road to our casino mine so you look at this jurisdiction compare this to jurisdictions where their governments are taking mines away from companies and here you have a jurisdiction in the Yukon where the government is actually providing money for infrastructure and this is money that's come in the past year so it's a absolutely great place to work. It's got good support from the government, good support from the First Nation, and really, it's a mining jurisdiction. Well, Paul Wessels, President of Western Copper and Gold, it's always great to see you. I enjoyed our time with the Yukon. It's great to chat with you here on the phone. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Well, thank you very much, Alice. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I've been speaking with Paul Wessels, President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold trading as WRN on the New York Stock Exchange and WRN on the TSX. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Join me for a phone conversation with Donald McInnes, the co-founder and partner of Oxygen Capital Corporation. 
Oxygen is a fully integrated mining house with skill sets in resource discovery and development, mine operations and production, capital markets and business development. They are developers, permitters, fundraisers, explorers, branders, and mine builders. Since 1993, Mr. McInnes has been the founder, president, and a director of a number of publicly traded mineral exploration companies. Mr. McInnes was a former director of Frontier Gold from 2001 to 2011 and is currently chairman of Blackstone Ventures Incorporated, an exploration and development stage company focused on Scandinavian exploration. Mr. McGinnis has written what I'd like to call a white paper entitled The Demise of Capital in Canada for Innovation, which according to Mr. McGinnis was written as a call to action to appeal to people or organizations that are concerned with Canada as an innovation nation. Donald, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alice. It's great to be here with you. Now, I've been considering the title of your white paper for quite some time, years actually, The Demise of Capital in Canada for Innovation. Now, there's been a lot of consolidation going on with regard to the brokerage firms and and the funds, and a lot of the larger firms have snapped up the smaller firms. As a result, I think the individual investor has less access to be able to trade the way they want to. And companies, as you've alluded to, have a little bit of a harder time getting to, I'm using the word honest money, you've never said that, money that they can take safely without risking some sort of sellout by these firms when the market goes into full steam, which it hasn't yet done in the resource sector. Your comments? Well, I think that there's a bigger issue than what you're pointing as honest money, and and that is because of the structure of, and I'm referring to Canada here, not U.S. or elsewhere, the role of the broker-dealer has changed a lot, and when the markets have been most robust, it's when the public, broadly speaking, has the ability to invest in risk or small-cap issuers. And over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been an evolution in capital markets where, to mitigate risk, mutual funds of various kinds have been created to give the average investor the ability to make an investment decision without having to pick individual equities that might go up in value. And what's happened in Canada, starting in the 1970s, the Canadian banks were allowed to buy brokerage firms, and the banks over time have evolved the whole mutual fund business to the point where they really don't, through their broker-dealers, employ stockbrokers anymore. They have people who are wealth gatherers or relationship people, and they are accumulating assets from their client base, putting it generally in bank-created mutual funds, which is wonderful, except that the banks haven't created any mutual funds that invest in anything that looks like a TSX venture exchange listed company or a non-revenue company. So this is a broader topic of discussion than just mining, but mining exploration as an area that requires a lot of capital and you're taking risk before a company is cash flowing, this reduction of risk by the banks, and today in Canada they control a trillion dollars of depositors' money through their brokerage firms, you've got this money not participating in financing venture capital. And the other thing that you mentioned is the broker-dealers are going down in number In 1999, there were 53 member firms of the Vancouver Stock Exchange, the precursor to the TSX Venture Exchange. And today, 27 of those firms don't exist. Many of those firms used to have multiple offices. So we've got 27 firms. Suppose they had an average of 10 offices. You've got 270 less offices than existed before employing a number of brokers who were collecting money from their clients and financing mining issuers or other small cap companies, all looking to create new 
businesses or hopefully find new mines in the case of the mining industry. So there's been a huge shift in the whole structure of the capital market where the broker-dealers are down in number and the number of people in the public, if I can call the average person the public, they don't have brokers trying to sell them equities for these mineral exploration companies. So for the mining exploration companies to stay financed, it's harder and harder because there's smaller pools of capital being made available to the mellows. Well, there's so many points and questions that I could make and ask related to what you're saying. Basically, institutional money in the past has been the best money, but it's a basket of retail investment across the board that's been handed over to the institutions to control. And therefore, as an individual retail investor attempting to buy a stock that they've heard about, uh, let's say a Canadian stock or even an American stock, in many cases, a micro cap or a small cap stock, typically if you were a sophisticated investor or maybe a general investor, you'd want to call your broker and get some help with that but your broker really can't even discuss it, will go negative on the the prospect and advise against perhaps even a private placement. So you're relying on that Canadian company. If you're a U.S. investor, for instance, and you want to buy a Canadian concern, A, to be listed in the U.S. And if it's not listed in the U.S., your sophisticated broker network has to approve the stock, and that's going to cost you money to even get that approved, especially if you get a certificate, more or less. So in one sense, I think this is partially driven, and you're more educated on this than I am. This is partially driven by the TSX exchange itself. You know, we've got a lot of equities that are no longer in the market because for a variety of reasons, they didn't have the management, they didn't have the projects, they didn't have the capitalization. So the chaff has been taken care of for the most part. So I guess my long-winded question to you is, how does a mining or resource company get access to capital now? So it's becoming increasingly challenged for the small cap issuers, the mining companies, to find equities you're observing. Firstly, the Canadian banks, as I said, control a trillion dollars through their networks. This is in Canada, at least. And usually, 5 to 10% of a portfolio should be invested in growth or risk. So that 50 to $75 billion that's not available for these small companies to go out and explore. Second, the number of firms that exist is way down in numbers. So you've got capital that can't touch this sector now, and now you've got the number of brokers is way down in numbers. So the distribution model of these brokers raising money is greatly changed. And then the other part that we haven't touched on, although you did a little bit, is regulation. And you talked about sophisticated investors or private placements. In 1998, I think it was, Barrett did a short-form prospectus for $900 million or $750 million. It was only 16 pages long. That same document today would, because of regulatory creep, would be over 40 pages long. The other part is the cost of running an independent brokerage firm has skyrocketed. In 10 years, the cost of running an independent brokerage firm in Canada, they've gone from 36% of revenue to cover costs, now it's 54%. The bank-owned firms are up to 42%. So we've just got this creep of things going on and on and on, more and more difficult for these small-cap issuers to raise money. Having said that, there is always capital available for good people and good projects. And at Oxygen Capital, we manage and have created four companies. We've been able to raise $73 million of risk capital this year, largely through the private placement mechanism that you've touched on. And 
the limiting factor with that is it's only sophisticated investors or accredited investors who we can try to raise new money from. So that marginalizes a lot of people from the public who may like risk, but because they don't qualify as a accredited investor, they're not able to participate in a private placement. So that makes things more difficult for a lot of issuers. You know, I want to interrupt you here, if you don't mind, Donald, just because I think it's a strong point that you just made. Let's say I don't have the funds, I'm not liquid, and I'm not an accredited investor, which is not the case. But let's say that I am, or a listener is, or an individual is, but yet I'm free to take whatever amount of money in the open market, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 grand if I want to, and invest in any concern, which would be ridiculous without doing the research. I can do that. But if, if I want to do a private placement and I don't qualify as an accredited investor, I can't. I can't do it. However, I also know that first money in, and that's the private placement people that come in at the beginning of the deal, often is the first money out. So the mom and pop retail investor that's not accredited, it's not winning as much as the individual that's getting involved in the private placement, and their money's really at risk. So uh, please elaborate on that, and I believe I might have read something about that in your white paper. So there's two things. Usually when you're doing a financing, And right now, this last year would be a good period of time to look at by way of example. New financings, companies aren't usually selling a share. They're selling a share and a warrant or a share and a half a warrant. And so for the average public member who's not accredited, in terms of making money, you're talking about the first money in, they're not getting exposed to being able to buy the unit. They're having to buy a share in the open market. So that's one thing. The other part that's really perverse, if you will, is... Anybody can go online and gamble any amount of money they want on a poker website or you can go and buy a cryptocurrency and there's no regulation about how much money you can put at risk or when you put it at risk or whatever. And there's no knowledge required to put money at risk for online gaming and other things. Yet the securities industry, because there has been issues in the past, were heavily, heavily regulated. And the average member of the public, broadly speaking, has been regulated out of being able to participate in buying new equities or shares or warrants in public companies. And with the internet now, disclosure is constant. The public and the regulatory community have never had more access to information about companies Yet, it's harder and harder for companies to be able to sell securities to raise new risk capital to go out and drill their holes and do their geological and geophysical surveys and things. So we're kind of setting ourselves up for failure here, and the group of people that have access to financing companies is the dwindling number. And brokerage firms like Spot, for example, that participate in the small cap mining market, GMP, Cormark, Canaccord, PI, it's becoming a buyer's market and they're able to be more and more selective and they've got more and more pricing power available to them because it's so hard for these small cap issuers to source capital. And it's really becoming a very difficult industry to be in because it is so hard to find capital and because fewer and fewer people qualify. Now, here in Canada, there are a number of mining funds that do exist, but we're really down to only five or six funds in Toronto, Ellis. And as recently as June, all five of those mining funds were facing redemption. So it's becoming harder and harder to finance these companies when even the institutional money is becoming smaller and smaller. So we need to replace the historical 
way in which juniors found capital, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but it used to be the independent brokerage firm because the bank-owned firms in Canada wouldn't finance small cap issuers. It's funny, in Canada now, a, a micro-cap company is now deemed to be something under a billion and a half dollars of market cap. Well, if you look at the 2,200 companies on the TSX Venture Exchange that are labeled mining, I suspect the average size of those companies would be well under $100 million, which means it's a really, really small pool we're playing in. Doesn't this actually benefit the major and mid-tier mining companies? Because these smaller companies have no choice but to prove out their resource as quickly, as cheaply as possible, and sell out at a lower share price just to move the deal on, whether they're project generators or they're cash trapped. It just seems like a win-win for the uh, major mining companies who ultimately become the lenders and the banks. They're already buying into some of these deals anyway. They're financing these small mining companies to begin with, knowing that ultimately they're going to become vertically integrated. Your thoughts? Well, I'd agree. And the problem for society here, though, is that base metal reserves, industrial metal reserves are going down. And the amount of money spent on exploration and development has been going down. Therefore, the companies who are the producers, they've got a declining asset base and they don't have deposits they can turn into new mines for tomorrow because they haven't been spending money on developing them. Because we've just recently returned to decent metal prices, they haven't been spending money on replacing the deposits they've mined out. Therefore, the role of the junior has been to do that work for the seniors. And because the market has been so bad, and if you look at the Venture Exchange Index as a proxy, 2007 it peaked at 3,200, and today it's only around 750 or 700. You know, that's a 15% or 20% of the off of peak value. It means everything is really, really cheap for anybody with money. And that today is the seniors or the producers. There's a number of pools of private equity, resource capital partners and Pacific road to name two and the number of mining funds and specialty funds like spot would have they're just fewer and fewer in numbers so as a buyer the buyers really have choice because there is such a small number of the buyers out i asked this question to some of my peers and I'm, I'm talking about media pundits and people that speak about gold as keynote speakers or silver or, or precious metals or base metals I ask this question across the board, and usually they don't like it because they're vested into the sector, as I know you are, as I know I am, but I'm going to ask it anyway. From the viewpoint of an investor, why mining when you can invest in biotech, which really never has a a real slump, or some other sector that's just more lucrative in the short term and maybe the long term too right now? Uh, Are you going to answer this question? I think it's a good question to ask, and I think right now, because mining is cyclical, as is any commodity-driven industry, whether it's grains or canola or oil and gas, there are tremendous gains to be made if you time your investments looking at the long-term cyclicality of the industry. And right now, integrated companies like TAC, Lundin Mining, they're doing well, but the non-revenue companies have not reacted to increases in base metal prices for a very long time. Again, look at the Venture Exchange Index as a proxy for that movement. The Venture Exchange Index low in the last 10 years was something like 469. So it's been almost a double off of that low. It's in the 700, 750 range now. But really, most equities haven't changed. And the great place to make money is investing in people with a track record 
who will outperform that index over time. At Oxygen Capital, we had Frontier Gold, which we sold to Newmont for $2.3 billion. We sold Aurora to Paladin for $160 million. We sold True Gold Mining to Endeavor with peak value of about $400 million. And groups that get it right, and I'm just using us as an example, but there's many good management teams, management groups out there that can replicate that success. If you're investing at them when everything's kind of at the bottom, it's a great place to make money, especially when you're involved in, which mining is, a cyclical business, cyclical industry. And so you've got zinc and copper, nickel, they're way off of the last few year lows, but the companies exploring in for those metals haven't really performed if they're non-revenue companies. If you look at Arizona Mining, which was in the process of being bought out, it was paid $6 and change, I think, when the stock was trading at 350 or 360 so it was like a 60% premium takeout. So if you're investing in any of these companies with deposits that are growing, that are going to be part of the need for the integrated companies to fill their pipeline as they're depleting their existing asset base, these companies will be bought or these deposits will be put into production by these companies and eventually they will be bought because the bigger guys that need the cash flow need to replace their resources and reserves. So I'm not going to steer away from the question, when is it or why is it a good time to invest in a cyclical industry? You just have to pick the lows and things are very, very, very low. Everything is extremely cheap, cheap, cheap right now and it's a wonderful time for an investor who's a contrarian say, I know it's going to come back. I don't know if it's coming back tomorrow, September, next year, but it will come back. And when it does, it'll come back with a vengeance. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, actually. I think that makes perfect sense, and I'm glad I heard the answer that I did. Also, me as an investor, I like to buy companies that have some sort of takeout buyout strategy. And I think if you're patient, you can really ignore the market right now, no matter what it does, knowing that eventually these projects will have some legs based on the track record of the teams in place. It's all about the people. It really is. And people make luck. Luck doesn't just show up. For the prospect generator companies, they're applying science. It's high risk, and it's difficult. But if you look at oxygen companies, for example, Sun Metals just bought a project that's had $25 million spent on it. We raised $6.5 million off of a pre-money valuation of 10 on a project that's had $25 million spent on it, 400 drill holes, and there's a 3 million ton resource there. Liberty Metals, one of our other companies, it's got three past-producing gold mines in the U.S. that last operated when gold was $300. All of the projects have hundreds of drill holes in them. None of them, the drill holes were in a historical database, and we've compiled those database, and we're drilling up and proving new resources and reserves and advancing those, not in a $300 gold environment, but in a $1,200 gold environment. Or if you look at Pure Gold, we bought the Madsen mine that was on care and maintenance. Claude couldn't make it work. We didn't try to run it as a mine. We stepped back, looked at the Madsen mine as an advanced stage exploration project. We've invested tens of millions of dollars drilling holes to prove up a decent resource. And our shareholders will be rewarded many times over in all of these cases because we are making luck by buying assets. If you look at Madsen, we bought that asset for next to nothing. If you went to permit that mine now, let's call it a million ounce gold mine. If you went to permit a million ounce gold mine now and build all the infrastructure that's at Madsen, you're looking at a multi-hundred million dollar investment. And we already had that. 
So not only is it cheap for our shareholders to be exposed to all of those assets, but it's already permitted. And that's something that people don't take into account. What is the cost of capital during the permitting process? In Canada and the United States now, it's 13 years on average to permit a new copper mine. So here we are, the Madsen project owned by Pure Gold, and it's fully permitted. You can't replace that. And so smart groups figure out the formula for success. So if you're betting on smart groups in a cyclical industry, which mining is, and all the indices would tell me were low, this would be a good time for smart investors to put their money to work on smart management teams with decent projects that can replace the pipeline that the majors haven't fulfilled themselves, and these companies will be taken out. Arizona Mining is a good example. That was a large deposit. It's not to say that smaller ones won't be taken out. If you look at Nevsun, it's being taken out by Lundin, not for its Eritrean opportunities, but for its development pipeline in Eastern Europe. And again, this is replacing that pipeline. Lundin bought the Eagle Mine, which wasn't in production, but it was replacing their pipeline. And there's more and more of these situations that will come up as the bigger companies wake up to the fact that their resource base is depleted and they haven't been replenishing that pipeline. Well, there's certainly a lot of opportunity out there. So I'm hoping this shift in raising capital and the better cadre of companies out there to invest in companies such as the one that you mentioned and the success that your team has had in the past. And currently, of course, we are probably at a market bottom again. And if you're a real contrarian and you can afford to just wait and you have the patience, you're not that emotional, it's a good time to be involved in mining. Absolutely, and I think that's the key words. If you can remove your emotions from this and look at the charts, and all these things are cyclical, and you can easily tell that we're at the bottom of the cycle. Commodity prices have come back in the last six months, but none of the companies involved, the industry, have responded with that increased price. And the asset base of the majors, as we've talked about, continues to go down and they need to replace that. The whole world is never going to stop consuming metals to build cities. Right now, China is building the equivalent of Houston every three weeks. It takes a lot of metal to build Houston every three weeks from all the roads, bridges, tunnels, washing machines, transit systems, buses, cars, on and on and on. And this is a huge opportunity for our sector, especially for the investor that gets the timing right. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program with Oxygen Capital Corporation. It's been a real pleasure engaging with you, and I look forward to future conversations. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Allison, to your listeners. You've listened in on a phone conversation between myself and Donald McInnes, co-founder of Oxygen Capital Corporation. To learn more about Oxygen, go to their website, oxygencapitalcorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the proof. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.